Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the, fe- the t- November the 25th, 2021. It's Thanksgiving Day in the United States, where I am on the West Coast um, in California, in San Francisco. Uh, some of you will ask, why am I broadcasting on Thanksgiving Day? That's a good question. I'm not quite sure. Um, as a non-American, I've never quite understood what Thanksgiving was about. And perhaps that's the subject that we can investigate uh, on today's show. A better question actually might be why my guest is willing to appear on my show on Thanksgiving. Uh, One clue is that he doesn't have any children, so uh, that might be a good reason. Um, Yesterday, we had a really interesting show, actually, with a young uh, adventure writer, Jordan Salama, recent graduate of Princeton University. He wrote a wonderful book, or he has written a wonderful book called Every Day the River Changes. It's about a four-week trip, an adventure he made down the Magdalena River in Colombia, the river that splits the country in half, uh, the Latin American country of of Colombia, the largest river in the country. Um, Remarkable river, remarkable book. I'm intrigued, of course, that in Colombia, the colonialists named this dominant river after Mary Magdalene, um, a woman who was born supposedly on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. The naming of nature is an interesting subject, and it's something that we're going to talk about today. Uh, We're also going to talk about nature. The star of of the book we did yesterday, Jordan Salama, Every Day the, the River Changes, is a river. Today, the star of our book, and I think our conversation, is a mountain, Denali Mountain in Alaska, the largest mountain, the tallest mountain in North America. And there's a really intriguing new book out about it. It's called A Window to Heaven, The Daring First Ascent of Denali, America's Wildest Peak by Patrick Dean. Uh, And I'm thrilled that Patrick is joining us from Monteagle, Tennessee. Patrick, I didn't mean to reveal the fact that you didn't have any children, uh, which um, you should think uh, you should you should feel good about that, because as I told you beforehand, uh, children are not a good ROI. But um, why are you joining us on Thanksgiving? Haven't you got anything better to do? Uh, of course not, Andrew. Um, no, my wife and I have a very me- mellow, casual Thanksgiving at home. Uh, no obligations, no travel or anything like that. So it was a perfect chance to sit and have a chat with you today. You're a spiritual guy, um, Patrick. Um, Spiritual writer, spiritual training, and I think a spiritual thinker. And this book, um, A Window to Heaven, The Daring First Ascent of Denali, is spiritual on a number of different levels. The mountain itself is, is, is... about as close to proof of God as, as there exists. What do you make of the mountain? Uh, how, much, how much research did you de- do on, on Denali um, uh, for writing this book? 
Well, I did a, a fairly good bit, I think. Probably not enough. You never do enough research, but uh, especially when it comes to walking outdoors, right? <laughs> right. Um, uh, but there's no question that it, it is so central, not only geographically and physically and all that, but spiritually, emotionally, historically, um, uh, especially to Alaska Native people, but also to the whites who arrived there beginning in the 1700s. It's, it's so massive, so prominent, so in the middle of everything, so so visible. Well, at least 30% of the time it's visible through the cloud cover. Um, but it can be seen, you know, from Cook's Inlet at the very south of Alaska um, and all through the Yukon uh, uh, drainage where Hudson Stuck had his career. So, all right, well, we're going to get onto Hudson Stuck in a minute. Um, but uh, as you say, the Denali Mountain is right in the middle of Alaska. Um, and uh, I'm curious, we did a show recently with the historian, Kentucky-based historian Margaret Jacobs on indigenous peoples and the way in the various crimes against them, which I don't need to educate you about, Patrick. Um, how did the indigenous peoples of Alaska view this mountain? Did they see it as a god? Well, there's definitely a religious aspect to it, and they, they, they're an animistic, uh, their religion was animistic, and, and you know, so it, it, they believed that everything, every object, everything had a, uh, a spirit in it, the rocks, the trees, the animals, and everything. So Denali, as this huge mountain, this huge uh, thing in front of them, um, had huge spiritual value and a huge spirit to it. So in that sense, it definitely was considered uh, part of their cosmology, part of their theology. What I like, one of the things I, I like about your book, A Window to Heaven, The Daring First Descent of Denali, is it's not a, just another bashing of the white American uh, settler colonialist. There's a, there's a kind of hero in the book. His name, as you mentioned earlier, is Hudson Stuck, a quite remarkable character who, who led this first ascent. Tell me about Hudson Stuck. What's so remarkable about him? And why did you dedicate really writing this book around Stuck's life? Well, he is a really fascinating character on so many levels and, and a quite sympathetic character on a lot of levels too. Um, he immigrated from England when he was 23, flipped a coin, and ended up in Texas, where he was a, became a cowboy and a schoolroom teacher. Um, went and became a priest. Um, came back to Texas as the dean of cathedral in Dallas, where he started this amazing career as a social justice advocate, building schools, hospitals, uh, working for the first child labor laws in Texas in 1902. And then in 1904, he heads to Alaska, but to become archdeacon of Alaska in the Yukon, responsible for a quarter of a million square miles of territory in the middle of the interior, um, where he wrote four books, traveled thousands and thousands of miles, um, and became and became the first to ascend Denali. But he became known and is still known today for his advocacy work on behalf of Alaskan natives uh, in the wake of the gold rush, which had just started right before he arrived in Alaska. Uh, as you mentioned, he was a Christian. He was a member of the Episcopal Church. Um, what what perhaps you might summarize his theology and the way in which that theology intersected with an appreciation a love and perhaps even a fear of nature itself right well there are two main sort of theological streams that converge in him 
um, you know, the social gospel, which is, is still with us today, you know, the idea that uh, that being a Christian or or being spiritual uh, by definition involves caring about your fellow human beings and trying to work on their behalf and improve the lots of the people who are in your in your world. And then there was another strain called muscular, muscular Christianity, which, yeah, which a, I, I like muscular Christianity so much. I have a slide of it, um, which. It sounds to me very Darwinian. Was it indebted to that school of thought in 19th century England? It could have been, and it did have its darker side. It had its, uh, well, first of all, muscular Christianity was sort of a, um, an outgrowth of 19th century, um, the British imperialism, the sort of the prep school uh, ethos, you know, rugby and all that stuff. And, you know, men were supposed to have grit and be, you know, and Hudson Stark was a product of the British class system. I think um, he, he he wasn't a poor boy. He wasn't like Alexander Hamilton, who arrived uh, in North America with nothing. Right. He was he was lower middle class, lower to lower middle class to middle class. Um, didn't get to go to prep school or to university in England, um, but he definitely uh, sort of absorbed that and and took took it with him to the United States. But his muscular Christianity, I mean, he he definitely. From his life, you can tell that he believed in the strenuous life and he believed that was good for people, which is a major part of muscular Christianity. You know, uh, the priests were supposed to be able to ride horses and shoot rifles and build, you know, uh, dig wells and all that sort of thing on behalf of their people. They weren't supposed to be the, the character, you know, the caricature of the, the weak, retiring, meek, mild uh, religious figure. And you suspect of- there was a Darwinian element. Uh, I'm curious, how do you think... Um... Uh, Stuck's muscular Christianity compared and contrast with Thoreau, the transcendentalist. We had the great American um, nature writer David Gessner on the show earlier this year talking about uh, Thoreau, his great hero, but it's also he, he's just written a book which is quite critical of Thoreau. Is it a compliment to the transcendentalist or does it present a quite different kind of Christianity and indeed a a different kind of appreciation of nature. Because after all, Thoreau immersed himself in nature, although the old story went that his mother did his washing, whereas Stuck really did climb Denali. Right. I'm a, I'm a Thoreau partisan. I think he gets a bad rap for that, that sort of uh, criticism. But I will say, I think, it's, I think it's quite different. I think, I think Thoreau was after something a little bit different than, than, than Stuck and the muscular Christians were. I think uh, uh, the... Thoreau and his ilk were trying to get lessons, take lessons from nature. Whereas I think Stuck was about reveling in it, uh, appreciating it for what it was, testing himself in it, um, learning about himself in nature, and uh, and trying to learn everything he could in the process. Well, uh, Gessner also came on the show. Uh, he's been on a couple of times. He wrote a book um, last year about Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, he wrote a book um, actually. Um, uh, refinding Roosevelt's um, trip across America and appreciating nature in a Rooseveltian sense. Um, Stuck was, of course, a contemporary of Roosevelt. Did they have a, a similar appreciation and love of nature? I'm not sure how religious Roosevelt was. His life, of course, was full of twists and turns, very bad luck. That's right. Well, you have the parallel that Roosevelt went out to the Dakotas uh, to you know, be a cowboy uh, in the in the wake of personal tragedy, and uh, he had I quote him in the book as uh, 
touting the benefits of to young men of riding off and, and riding horses and, and uh, branding cattle and all that sort of thing. So uh, uh, Stuckwood appreciated that when he went to the wilds of uh, the plains of Tex West Texas in 1885. Um, but Stuck actually uh, spent some time with Theodore Roosevelt in the White House in 1909. He stopped mm -hmm. in to uh, push, his, push his agenda on, on the president. Um, many people will, of course, be familiar with the fact that um, Denali was once called Mount McKinley, and that goes back to the naming of places. Uh, we began the show uh, talking about the Magdalena River, which I'm sure one day they'll change their name to an indigenous Colombian name. Why did McKin Mount McKinley change to Denali? Well, or why did it? Why did Denali change to McKinley? I guess. Apologies. Yeah, that was that was a bad Freudian error there. Yeah, it went the other way. So right. originally, so so who who named the mountain originally? The, the Alaska natives did. I mean, several. Different... They didn't name it McKinley. No, they named it Denali, the tall one. Right, but. Denali. But what is it known as now? Officially, it's Denali as of 2014. Um, and then uh, when was it named McKinley? <laughs> uh, the name was already in use when Stuck arrived in 1904. Uh, a, a prospector who was traveling through uh, during the gold rush sp spotted this mountain and started calling it McKinley and the name sort of stuck, if you'll pardon the, the term. And uh, it was already commonly in use among the white Alaskans when Stuck, uh, when Stuck headed up in 1913. But to be fair to Stuck, he wasn't the classic, as we said, suggested earlier, wasn't this white evil colonialist, at least in your mind. He wasn't an appropriator of names and of nature and of traditions. No, not at all. Throughout his life, throughout his time in Alaska, and even before that in Texas, you see that he is, he is very concerned with, with uh, doing it right by people, by uplifting the lives of the people around him helping people however he can. And he took that with him directly to Alaska. On his very first trip up the Inside Passage, um, he was already talking about how um, the native ways, the native customs were in danger of being wiped out by this onslaught of, of, uh, of the gold rush and what a shame that would be. And he, he devoted much of his time in Alaska to trying, trying to stop that. Did he have, a, do you think, a, particularly, a particular spiritual weakness for mountains? He was educated like you at Sewanee, um, which itself is on a mountaintop, the great university of the South. Uh, did he think in those symbolic terms? Was Did muscular Christianity extend to metaphor? I wish we knew more about his personal feelings about mountains and mountaineering. That's one of the, that's one of the gaps uh, in, the, in the research that, that, that's really infuriating and, and, and frustrating but he didn't talk a lot about his own motivations. He just said how things were and what he wanted to do. And he, he wrote, he, he was very obvious that the fact that, the, that there was an unclimbed mountain like Denali in Alaska was one of the reasons he went. We know he had a huge library of exploration books, all of the classics from Hacklett's voyages in the 16th century on up to right his current day. Um, he was an avid uh, scholar of, of exploration, polar exploration and all that. So I'm, I think he saw himself in that line and he hoped to become part of that lineage of exploration. And it was, of course, uh, 1913, June 1913 was the age of exploration, of discovering the Arctic. So it was another chapter in that narrative. Absolutely. You had uh, um, 
uh, Amundsen and Scott down in the South Pole. Uh, you know, the, the North Pole had happened just right about that same time. So it was one of the great ages of polar exploration. And, and he was uh, no doubt caught up in that, in that idea. Pajay, we're going to take a, a short break. And then we're going to come back and talk specifically about this remarkable uh, ascent uh, led by uh, Hudson Stark and talk about the other members of his party. So hold on, everyone, for a couple of minutes and we'll be back. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um using apple or spotify or castbox or many of the other traditional uh podcast distribution platforms we're on all of them and if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together you can go to my LitHub page um in their podcast section which is dedicated to all the interviews uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Patrick Dean, the author of A Window to Heaven. Cast your mind back to June 1913 as the world, not that anyone knew it at the time, hovered on the brink of a kind of apocalypse after uh, 19, well, certainly after 1914, the world would never be the same. If you look for the headlines in 1913, a couple of headlines. Firstly, the Ottoman Grand Vizier was assassinated. And the second thing, was that on June the 7th, 1913, a four-man team became the first to climb to the top of North America's highest mountain. And that's what we're talking about today uh, with, uh, with Patrick Dean, the author of Window to Heaven, which is about this trip. Patrick, tell us about the planning of this trip and, and how long it took and the trip itself, it's quite remarkable what these guys accomplished. And who, who was part of the party in addition to Hudson Stuck? There were four all told. Um, in addition to Stuck, there were Harry Karstens, who was uh, a sourdough uh, miner, prospector, um, mail uh, deliverer of mail by dog sled across Alaska. Um, rough, very. What very does sourdough mean? So it, a sourdough is a sort of a common term that refers to somebody who's been in Alaska long enough to prove themselves. They haven't frozen to death or, or yeah. killed them. I mean, it, was a, it, it attracted the hardiest of souls at the beginning of the 
the 20th century. I mean, how many people even lived in Alaska in 1913? <laughs> I don't have that number. I'm sorry, Andrew. But it was pretty sparse compared to how, how it was later on, for sure. I mean, a million people came in there for the gold rush, but a lot of uh, Yeah, and when did the gold rush begin then? 1897. Okay. But yeah. I assume by 1913, the, the gold rush had finished. It had so Peter. After, to, to quote a famous song, it was after the gold rush. <laughs> right. Thank you, Neil Young. Um, right. A lot of them have turned around and gone back. So it was not, it was not. Uh, okay. Uh, so we had, so we had uh, Hudson Stock, of course. We had uh, Car Harry Carstens. Who else? So you have Walter Harper, who's a 21-year-old uh, half Alaska native who was Stuck's protege, had been traveling with Stuck on his dog sled tours around interior of Alaska um, and was being educated by Stuck in the camps at night as they as they drove around. Um, and then you so have- he was an indigenous Alaskan. That's right, half. His father was Irish and his mother was, was native. Um, and the fourth member was Robert Tatum, um, a priest trainee from Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, he's sort of the fifth beetle of this of this thing because he goes back to Knoxville after this and does pretty much nothing else but be a priest for the rest of his life. So, but he was a fourth member and he and definitely- what about this guy? I was a bit confused. John Fredson, was he involved? What was his role? So there were, there were two 16 year old native youth who were left at base camp. Um, okay. And, yeah. And well, actually one of them came up part, part way up the mountain and then took the dogs back to uh, Tanana where they started. And the other one, John Fredson remained at base camp, kept base camp for, for the climbers. Uh, some, some of the more uh, literary-minded members of our audience, and on LitHub, of course, they are very literary, be familiar with Hudson Stuck's book, 10,000 Miles with the Dog Sled, a narrative of winter travel in uh, interior Alaska. To what extent was Stuck not just the the, the sort of the political leader, but the, the, the moral and physical leader of this expedition. To a very great extent, he was, although he, he goes out of his way and it becomes crucial later that he did go out of his way to stress how much he depended on Karstens for his strength and his experience and his knowledge of the backcountry too. Um, he, he was quite clear that he could not have done this and would not have done this expedition without, without Karstens' uh, contributions to it. But my understanding from the book is that relations between Carstens and Stuck weren't idyllic. That's right. They they clashed, very much clashed in terms of personalities on the mountain. And afterwards, uh, Carstens cultivated this uh, almost a hatred of Stuck and a, and a conviction that he'd been cheated out of uh, whatever profits there were to be made from the ascent through through lectures and sales of books and magazine articles and photographs and things like that for his part how, how aware were these men that they were making history did it make the i mean it, now it's in the headlines did it make the headlines in june 1930 it did it did and it and those headlines inflamed that situation i just referred to because they without almost without fail they say uh, episcopal clergyman summits denali or stuck party reaches top of highest mountain that sort of thing he was very much considered by the outside world and by the media of the day as the leader. And Carson was almost like his helper. Um, so we fed him. the indigenous peoples of, 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 of Alaska, particularly the, the, the sort of the tribal leaders, how did they treat this um, ascent? Did they see it as a, an, a, an affront to the gods or were they quite sympathetic with what um, Stuck was doing? We only have one, we only have one, 
response like that on the record. And it was one of the earliest attempts on Denali was by Judge Wickersham, who was an early pioneer and one of the first judges in Alaska who decided in 1903 he was going to give it a try. And uh, the story goes that he met up with a group of natives uh, who were hunting at the base of Denali. And uh, they asked him what if he was going up there for gold or something. And he said, no, I'm just wanna, I just want to go up there and just to do it. And they laughed and called him a fool for, for, having, for, uh, for doing it for the so, so ridiculous reason. Um, but other than that, we don't have much in the way of, of, uh, of analysis or commentary from the natives in that period. I mean, this was quite an achievement. They didn't, unlike Thoreau, they didn't have their mothers with them to do their laundry. Um, put it in perspective, what did these guys actually accomplish? What kind of equipment did they have? How, how remarkable is the achievement of simply doing this uh, ascent of Denali? It's, it's a sizable achievement. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing feat for four uh, fairly inexperienced and in some cases, totally inexperienced mountaineers. Um, you know, they, they began in March uh, in, in Tanana, which is 150 miles away from, from Denali. They had to uh, dog sled their way to the base of the mountain. That took weeks. Then they actually took the dogs and the dog sleds partway up the mountain on the Muldrow Glacier through crevasses, lo losing dogs into crevasses and pulling them out and all that sort of thing. Um, their gear, as you can imagine, was pretty rudimentary in 1913. They wore eight pairs of woolen socks and links for mittens. There was no Gore-Tex, there was no fleece, there was no, no any of that stuff. Nothing waterproof really except waxed, co waxed cotton. So um, it, was, it was an amazing feat, especially given some of the other things that happened along the way that made the journey more perilous and more of a, a hazard and challenge to get to the top. How would it compare, for example, and uh, we've actually had a couple of shows about mountaineering. Uh, how would it compare, especially of, of Everest, how would it compare to the ascent of Everest? There are some similarities in, the, in, in that there's very little technical mountaineering in, in either case. It's more about, you know, dealing with the weather conditions and uh, the atmosphere and all that sort of thing. Um, I think Everest might be technically a little bit more difficult because there are a couple of, there's this, this step, the Hillary step and that sort of thing. Um, but it's mainly about the weather. It's the weather that makes, turns 50% of the Denali attempts around. It's the weather that kills people on Everest, as we know, from uh, Into Thin Air and, and those books. So in, in, they're very similar in a lot of ways, but Denali partisans will point out that it's farther from the base of Denali to the top than it is Everest. Even though Everest is taller overall, it's a shorter it's a shorter trip from the from the base of, the, of Everest to to the top. So what did they do when they get to the top? I assume they planted a flag. <laughs> they planted a homemade flag that Robert Tatum had sewn in camp. Um, they also had uh, a cross. I mean, stuck as the priest. You know, they uh, they planted a cross and and said a prayer, and uh, and then they took some instruments because it was that Victorian thing where you didn't just climb for glory; you climbed to take the temperature readings and the barometer readings and all that sort of thing. So. You know, it wasn't wasn't just all about personal glory. Uh, and then they, they spent about an hour, hour and a half on the summit and then turned around and came down. Um, I know uh, you you recently gave um, a, a speech at TEDx, a theme of uh, the University of the South at Sewanee, appropriately called the TEDx event was uh, Moving Mountains. Uh, you, you talk about three lessons that you particularly have learned from Hudson Stark and this ascent of Denali. What are they? Well, the first is to you know to to take on risks and challenges. That's how, that's how we can enlarge and expand our lives. You know, 
we've, we've talked about Stucks, how he flipped the coin and went to Texas, how he left Texas to go to Alaska. And over and over again, he was willing to put himself out there and push himself to try new He things. was a muscular Christian, wasn't he? <laughs> exactly. But that's those aren't the only kind of risks and challenges. We, you know, all of us have faced lots of challenges and risks, small scale and large scale, that we can that we can throw ourselves into to to make our lives better. And the the second thing was uh, was a love and respect for nature. Um, he wrote beautifully about the, what he saw in Alaska from the. Uh, the northern lights to the, the snow and the mountains and the rivers and all of that. Um, something that, that really resonates with me. And I think appreciating nature and, 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 you know, grasping the beauty of where we are also expands our lives and makes our lives more. I mean, it was a window to heaven in literally and metaphorically, of course. And right. thirdly, uh, doing good for others. I mean, that's, that's the obvious one. We've already talked about stuck in that, in that way too. Um, he said he he can't he could never he could never conceive of a life that wasn't at least partly devoted to to helping other people uh, and trying to make their lives better. That's that was that was his that was his guiding principle, I think. So those are my three. Patrick, finally, um, we of course live in a very different time in 2021 than 1913. There was no global warming crisis. There was no environmental crisis. There was no melting of the the polar ice caps and all the rest of it. Uh, we've had many shows about um, this crisis. One of the people that I found particularly interesting who came on the show was um, uh, uh, a woman called Catherine Hayhoe. She's the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. She has a, a really interesting new book out called Saving Us, a Climate Scientist Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. Hayhoe happens to be married to uh, a man called Dr. Andrew Farley, who um, is a Christian minister in Texas. And when I talked to Heiho, she really stressed in terms of the need to talk about this crisis, the role of Christianity. A hundred years after Hudson Stuck's great ascent, I think he died uh, almost a hundred years ago, actually just over a hundred years ago in October 20, 1920, as a muscular Christian, Episcopalian, what lessons do you think they teach us for 2021 and for Christians who want to think positively and aggressively in perhaps a muscular way about fighting our current environmental crisis? Well, I, I think the lessons are, are the standard ones. I think there's a lot of inspiration in people like Stuck who who put themselves out there, who worked so hard on behalf of others. Um, who are always looking for solutions to the to the problems, um, and we have to use whatever spiritual uh, forces we have, whatever spiritual strengths we have, to confront this. I don't think despair I, the word despair didn't even exist in Hudson's sex vocabulary, and I think we can we can take heart at that and be inspired by that. I think he would he would think despair was the the worst possible response to whatever situation you find yourself in. Um, he didn't counsel it to the native people that he lived and worked among for decades, and he certainly wouldn't wouldn't counsel despair to us now. He'd be looking for solutions. And I think I think we should follow that example. I think I agree with you, actually. I think he'd be a much better guide than someone like Thoreau. Um, Patrick uh, Dean, a window to author of your first book, uh, A Window to Heaven, The Daring First Ascent of Denali, America's Wildest Peak. 
wonderful book, wonderful story. I didn't know anything about it before picking up the book. And it's an important story and an interesting story. And it doesn't fall into so many of the cliches, which uh, all too many of today's books fall into. So congratulations on that book. You are talking to me on Thanksgiving Day, Patrick, from Tennessee. Time to do some other reading. What else should we be reading on Thanksgiving Day 2021, Patrick? Well, I've got two great environmental history books recently published. Both happen to be by women, two brilliant authors. So I really enjoyed them both. The first one is called Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait by wow. Mike Muth. Great sort of combination of native, white, and natural history about, about that part of the world. And then if you don't want to be cold, if you want to be warm, there's uh, The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans by Cynthia Barrett, professor at Florida, who does a wonderful, another wonderful job starting with prehistory and um, you know, all about seashells and how seashells and cultures and science have all intersected for thousands and thousands of years. You learn things you never imagined about people and their relationship to oceans and the shells and the animals in the shells. So two recommendations for you. Great suggestions, Patrick. You came equipped. You're a good student of Keenon, and I'm thrilled that uh, we had this opportunity to talk. A Window to Heaven is also a must-read. It's just out. It's by Patrick Dean. Patrick, stay in touch. Uh, I'd like to actually uh, do some more nature shows, and you're a man very well equipped to be on that. So let's stay in touch. Thank you again. Happy Thanksgiving to you, to your wife, and to everyone watching this show. Thank you. Back to your turkey. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.